Well, well. Uh, good evening. for him. One of the themes, the theme we've been looking at this week is what we call holiness. We've been finding that you cannot live for God out of self. Come in the book of Romans and you come up to chapter 7 and you find that Paul, we're not going to be looking there tonight, but I want to use this as a brief introductory uh, illustration. You look at chapter 7. And before that, even chapter 6, halfway through, he starts talking about struggling with sin. You know what I found? I have found that it's not self. It's not, it's not necessarily self. And we talked about this last night. It's not self that God condemns. Uh, it's rebellion that God condemns. And you see, I've talked to teenagers especially, and I'm sure this applies to us adults as well, although we're probably a little better at covering it up than the teens are. Teens are seem to be very honest. I found that teenagers at camps and at retreats, I found those adults at churches, the lack of desire to live for Christ is there. It's not that they don't have a lack of desire, it's that they cannot pull it off. What I found is, is that teenagers struggle. I find teens and I'll talk to them and they'll come to the altar year after year after year after year and struggle with the same things over and over and over and over again and they never get over them. No matter what they try, they've read every book, they've been counseled, they've had prayer partners, they've had accountability partners, they've had uh, lessons from the pastor at church, they've had seminars, they've done Sundays, they've done each, they have done everything you could possibly imagine. The desire is there, but they can't pull it off. That's me. You know what my desire is? When I'm putting in a, some plumbing... I wouldn't let it take my focus off of Jesus. Finally got my tub fixed in my motorhome today. Two and a half day job that should have took me 15 minutes. A little upset about that. A little upset about that. Really aggravates me, to say the least. Wouldn't it be something if I could see that? If I I could overcome that issue? Uh, If if something like that could not distract me. And you see, the, the stupidest things aggravate Jeremiah Bullock. The stupidest things. Things that don't matter five minutes from now. Things that don't matter definitely not for eternity aggravate me more than issues that will matter for the rest of my life. Teens, I understand. Adults, I understand that the desire to live above sin, the desire to live for Him faithfully is there. Paul comes into Romans chapter 7 and he talks about this struggling with sin. What I want to do, I cannot do. And what I do not want to do, that I do. And there's this whole great section on this struggling with sin about this can't measure up, about this can't figure it out, about this cannot live it. And then he comes into chapter right immediately after that into chapter 8 and the title of that section is Life Through the Spirit. And he ends and says, Who is going to save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to talk about life through the Spirit. That it is not I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. 
He says stuff like, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You can't pull this off. You cannot pull off Christianity. You're not going to be, I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to measure up. You know what I'm hoping? I'm hoping, you see, I've heard this a lot. I've heard people come into services and say, hey, leave your problems at the door. No, bring them right here. Bring them right in and set them right in the pew with you. Because the thing is, is you, I've heard people say, set them at the door and take them home when you leave. <laughs> leave them! Amen. Bring them right in with you. Amen. You see, my, I cannot cut my wife off from me. If my wife and I argue before I come to church, it sticks with me. This week when my wife is sick, it sticks with me. You see, I can't cut that off. God doesn't want me to cut that off. You see, I stand before Him with everything who I am. I'm hoping. You know what I'm hoping? Now, I understand this. I'm hoping you've got a problem in your life. And that you've brought it in here with you. And that you're going to find victory. I'm not talking about that victory that you always wanted, that you never reached. I'm talking about victory, folks. I'm talking about living in freedom. I'm talking about the freedom that Paul talks about. I'm talking about the freedom that Christ says you can have. That you can have life and have it abundantly. It's the type of freedom I'm talking about. This is called holiness. In the name of Jesus, this is called holiness. You can live this. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to cause death in your life. It's going to call death of me. It's going to call for, I'm no longer going to live out of my resource. It's called, I'm going to live in uncomfortableness. See, I've been asked to come to some churches and they say, we want you to come in here, find your niche and be comfortable. I said, well, I can never pastor here. They say, why? Because I would tell you to come in, be uncomfortable, sweat, bleed and die and lose your life and be crucified. Now, that's a church growth strategy for you. But that's the word of God. If you're comfortable, come, you probably need to be convicted of sin. Because the Christian life is never comfortable. And the book of Revelation says we have been made perfect through our sufferings and we participate in the sufferings of Christ. I, John, your brother, your companion in the, and patient endurance in the sufferings that are ours in Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross resurrected in my life. That the cross dies, Jeremiah dies, and Jesus lives through me. Amen. It's life through the Spirit. You see, I've under, found out that it's not the lack of desire we have in the church. We don't know how to die. Doing a study that I cannot share with you this week. Oh, I wish I could. It's out of Hebrews. There's never enough long. There's not long enough of a revival, nor enough money to pay for it all. <laughs> that was just a joke. Anyway, did a word study in the book of uh, Hebrews today. Really like the book of Hebrews. Finally able to get to it, and uh, did this word study on the word rest what it means to we have entered his rest in the book of hebrews chapter 3 there's this great comparison of course this the the theme of the book of hebrews is the, uh, the supreme the, the superiority of christ himself uh, he's greater than the prophets the first thing he says there in verses 1 through 3 he's greater than the angels and he comes into chapter 3 and he says he's greater than moses and there's this whole picture this illustration of who moses is and who christ is and of course uh, moses was leading god's people into the into god's resting place into their rest where they were resting in this place this place where god would reside with them and you see, that's something that Moses did, which is true, and he was great. But Christ did the same thing, but it was different, you see, because Christ led his people into the resting place where God will, we can literally rest in Christ. God literally rests inside of us. You know what the word rest means? Uh, the whole, he doesn't just pick. He doesn't just say. He says this on purpose. He does not just say, hey, they entered the place where God would dwell with them. He particularly picks out the word 
rest. You know what the word rest is actually literally translated as? To completely stop. To stop! That if I stop performing, if I stop trying to pull off Christianity, if I stop trying to be good, if I stop trying to do ministry, if I would completely stop everything in my life and just get one focused, it would all happen anyway. It's an absolute stop! You know what I pray for churches before I come in? What I've been praying for you? Is that God would knock every crutch out from underneath you. Not bad crutches, good crutches. Everything that you have that makes you feel like a good Christian, I'm going to pray He's going to take it away. Until you come to the point where you have nothing left to offer Him and realize that that's all He wanted in the first place. He wants you. He wants you to stop. He wants you to give up. He wants you to stop trying to pull it off. You can't pull it off. Everything that you produce is like filthy rags. Heard that somewhere. So stop producing. Completely stop. And respond to what He's doing. Lord Jesus, I can't do this without You. Lord Jesus, I really want to get into Your Word this evening. I really want to understand what it means to have Christ live within me. I really want to understand what it means to have the Holy Spirit residing in me. Jesus, I'd really like to be able to look at you as the incarnate God, the Emmanuel, God with us. Father, I really want to look at, I really want to look at your son tonight. Because I believe when I look at your son, I see who I've been destined, who I've been called to be. Jesus, you called me your brother. I'm one of the family. And you are a son of God. You brought many sons to glory. Oh, Jesus, would you open our eyes tonight? Would you open our eyes in this place? Grant us freedom in this place tonight, Father. Can we come to death in our life? Can we finally succeed where we never was able to succeed? I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles up to the book of John, chapter 1. was with you last time we was here. We was in the book of John together. And, of course, uh, we looked at a number of passages, a variety of scriptures. And uh, we're going to pick off... uh, uh, pick, pick up, I'm sorry, pick up where uh, we had left off. And I um, want to begin and look at a particular passage. It's John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. really want to focus on verses 31 through 34. And uh, this uh, book of John is very different than any other gospel you've ever read. It's any other gospel than it's in this book. Uh, there's four gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very different than that of John. John begins his gospel very differently. Of course, uh, and understand, these gospel writers, they are not writing uh, a, a biography. They're not writing a historical uh, presentation of who Jesus was. These, are, these, these gospel writers are writing evangelistic messages to get one certain theme across, to get one idea across. And the message for, Jesus, uh, for John is Jesus Christ Himself. He mentions one thing. I won't go all into that, but in verses 1 through 18, this is his message. Come down to chapter 20, verse 31, you're going to find that he gives the theme statement of his book. He comes to like almost the end of his book before he gives the final illustration, and he says, these things are written. The reason I'm writing. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But not only believing, but that you might have life in His name. This is why I'm writing. This is the the reason, the sum total, the core, the foundation basis for everything that I'm talking about, everything that I'm writing about. This is it. It's Jesus Himself. 
Now that's verses 1 through 18. Amen. You come into verse 19 and you, uh, and you find that that's the end of the prologue and the beginning of his story or the narrative has taken place. Uh, he begins talking about the story of Jesus. Um, and all throughout this first chapter is the first basic section of his book. This is where John, be- or John talks about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Of course, John the Baptist is witnessing to Jesus and Jesus is passing by. He, uh, the, his, his baptism has already happened. Uh, the wilderness, uh, 40 days, has already happened and he's now calling his disciples. And Jesus is out. He's calling uh, disciples and there are some who receive his calling and some who do not receive his calling. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this calling, John gives us a picture. Hear me now. Vital. John gives us a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Can I just be honest with you? You're probably going to get stretched tonight. Why? Because people like us in this generation... We hear these stories of Jesus. We read these, these truths, and we believe them. We read these truths of who Jesus Christ was, and we look at them as, as testifying that He was just a slight... He was human, but He was slightly above human. And, and we, we call Him, well, He's God and man. That's what we say. And He turns into be this type of Jesus who runs up in front of church, He rips open His shirt in front, and there's this big S right there. This super Jesus. This superhuman being. I mean, this type of guy who, I mean, he, if, uh, he, he, can, he, can, he can heal. He can walk across water. He commands the winds and the waves. I mean, he is this awesome, supreme Jesus. You're going to be stretched tonight. Because that's not what John, that's not how he pictures Jesus. Not only that, but that's not how Matthew pictures Jesus. It's not how Mark or Luke or, or Paul or James or Peter. And now the gospel writers picture Jesus. I'm not taking away from his miracles, not taking away from his godness, but I'm telling you that they don't picture Jesus as this superhuman Jesus. He's the prototype. He is the, he's the average, ordinary guy. Did you know that Jesus' name, when, when he was born, he was given the name that was a common name, that Jesus was the most common name of his day? They gave him Jesus. Why? Because he's a common, ordinary Joe, just like you and me. In fact, the historians say as he probably wasn't a very attractive guy. Definitely wasn't as good looking as your pastor was. I mean, he was a common, ordinary Joe. This is Jesus. John introduces him this way in verse 29 of chapter 1. He says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, There's this bold declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Then he adds, who takes away, literally separates his people from their sins. It's not that Jesus comes to save his people in their sin. No, no, no. He separates you from your sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, that's another sermon, but you come down a ways, you see in verse 31, he, he identifies Him in the most peculiar way. This is what I want to talk to you about tonight, verses 31, 32 through 34. He says in verse 31, we will look at one particular word, it's at the end of this verse. Verse 31 says, I myself did not know Him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that He might be demonstrated to Israel. I've told you that the Greek language is very uh, precise versus the English language, which is very ambiguous. Uh, English language, very ambiguous. Uh, of course, uh, I tell my wife that I love her. And I have a particular relationship with my wife. Uh, but you see, I also love pizza. 
and I have a particular relationship with pizza. And I love my dog Josie. But I have a particular relationship with my dog Josie. And even though I love them all, that love is vastly different. You see, the Greek language is not like that. Very, very precise. In fact, the phrase in your translations, he might be, and it might even say, he might be revealed. Better translation of that is he might be demonstrated. That is one word in the original language. He might be demonstrated. That's one word in the original language, and it's a word, phanerothē. Isn't that awesome? You want to learn Greek? Say it with me. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Phanerothē. Rothē. Well, sir, I'm sorry. You're probably just not going to learn Greek tonight. (laughs) It's the word phanerothē. Now, I know you're just dying to learn more about this word, so we're going to talk about it. This word is a first person singular aorist passive subjunctive. I know, isn't that exciting? Stay calm now, don't get too excited on me. It's a first person singular aorist passive subjunctive. Really only one thing I want to talk about in this word, so we're lucky. There's a number of reasons, uh, there's a number of, of parts of this word, but only one sermon is out of one part of this word. It's a part we want to talk about. This verb right here talks about that Jesus came, that he might be demonstrated. Fib, I want to talk about two parts. Aorist. Why do I translate this demonstrated instead of revealed? Uh, the aorist tense is an is a aspect of the verb, uh, uh, the Greek language, that talks about an action that, he, that the author does not want to pay any, any attention to time. It's often translated into past tense. But the aorist translation is a translation that is focusing in on, an, on, a, on a specific action with no reference to time. So it's the idea that Jesus came that he might be revealed, but see this revealing, you might ask, when does this happen? Well, he's not interested when it's going to happen. He's just saying that he came that he might be revealed. For instance, if Jesus walks out in the setting one day in a temple and he's there, someone hears him or sees him, they might see him. He might be revealed. But you see, he walks outside of the temple, someone else sees him, he might be revealed there as well. So he's talking about this point in time. You've got to hear this. This point in time, whenever that might be, that Jesus might be revealed. So if you look at it in the context of his whole life, he might be demonstrated. It's throughout his whole entire life that he might be demonstrated. The next part of this word I want to talk about is the passive tense. Jesus did not come that he would demonstrate to us. Jesus came that he might be demonstrated to us. And you might ask me, well, what does that mean? What's so significant about that? In reference to this passage, Jesus is just like this pen, which is in my hand. Did you know that this pen is impossible of performing an action? Did you know that? I'll set it right here. Jump. Told you. Roll over. Write. Play dead. Well, it's not playing dead. It may look like it's playing dead, but it can't play dead because it can't perform an action. This pen cannot perform an action. This pen cannot be used in terms of an action verb. Cannot happen. I can say to it, jump, and it doesn't jump. I can say roll over. I can say write. I'd like to, I would like to be able to tell it to write. It would write. But it cannot perform an action. This pen has to be performed in terms of a passive verb. For instance, this pen cannot write, but this pen can be written with. 
This pen cannot throw, but this pen can be thrown. This pen cannot roll over, but this pen can be rolled. This pen cannot tell its story, but I can tell its story or even my story with it. Do you hear this? I want you to hear this. This pen is impossible of performing an action. Now, this pen is exactly like that of Jesus Christ, in that Jesus did not come that He might demonstrate, but Jesus came that He might be demonstrated. And just as there's an outside force acting on this pen, there was an outside force acting on Jesus. And what was that outside force? It was God. You know, understand that everything that went on in the life of Jesus was not of Jesus' doing. Did you know that? That everything that went on in the life of Jesus was not a product of Himself. You know what I used to think about Jesus? Uh, I used to think about looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus, you know, the son of Joseph, the guy of Nazareth. I used to think that I always got confused with this God and man issue. He was fully God and fully man. We talked about that in college. And of course, theologians, us theologians, us pastors and biblical scholars, a way to get around this, we say, well, it's a mystery. <laughs> it is a mystery. I mean, you see, that always was a cop-out for me. Because on my test, when it came down to he was God and he was man, well, it's a mystery, really can't explain that. You see, He was God and He was man, but you see, He was exactly like you are. Did you know that? Sin accepted. What does He mean by sin accepted? He was not born in rebellion against God. Every way in which you are, He was. God came down and took on flesh. The Philippians passage. He became a servant. He came down and He took on the, our nature. God separated from you got to get this. God separated everything from himself. That was not like you. And he became a total absolute man, absolute man. Anything that Jesus uh, did, anything that you do, swip swap. Anything that you limit any way you're limited, he's limited. Any way that, uh, any way that you cannot perform, he could not perform. You see, he was an absolute, total man. In fact, everything that went on in the life of Jesus was not what Jesus was doing, but what God was doing. Easy uh, to tell you about this. Look over with me to John chapter, I believe it's uh, 6. Jesus, no, I'm sorry. uh, John chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, This is in the middle of his book practically and uh, he goes down to the temple to teach. Hear this now. He goes down to the temple to teach and he's there and he's teaching and the Pharisees are amazed and they ask him, verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. Uh, The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. He said, it's not my own. It's not my own knowledge. It comes from him. Everything that was going on, everything was going on in the life of Jesus. It wasn't from him. It was from God. Uh, You flip over just a few verses And you find in uh, chapter 8, verse 19, he says, they asked him, where is your father? He says, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You go down, but uh, a few more verses. Uh, And he says, uh, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. 
and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. You see, he never acted out of his own resource. He never did what he wanted to do. His whole life was an outspill of what God was doing. In chapter 14, hear this, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking with his disciples. And Philip looks over and he says, Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you don't believe on behalf of, you know, if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe on the half of the miracles themselves. You see, they've lived with him for three years. He's flesh and bones. He probably got runny noses. He probably got sick. He probably got a toe ache. Probably got a finger smashed. Probably had trouble with his plumbing. He was a man, absolutely man. And he says, if you don't believe what I'm saving, uh, saying, believe on behalf of the miracles themselves. I can't do that. You see, everything you can explain in Jesus' life by what God was doing. For instance, how do you explain the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, that's interesting, Jeremiah, you say. Well, because the birth of Jesus Christ was talked about before it ever happened. I mean, thousands and thousands of years, prophets have been speaking about this coming Messiah. And, and well, they, they knew He was going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew He was going to be born of a virgin. I mean, they knew that uh, He had to be, in fact, His family line, He knew He was going to be a, a descendant of David. And, and there was all these things that were fulfillments of Scripture. And Well, I guess the only way you can talk about the birth of Jesus is by what God was doing. Tell me something. How do you explain the childhood of Jesus? Well, that's... Pretty interesting too, Jeremiah. Come to think of it, I remember that when he was a kid, his family and their whole town went into town, went into the, to the fe- one of the feasts, and Jesus got separated from his parents, and they didn't realize it because they had a big group there, and, and they left and realized that he was gone, and they were gone one day. They traveled a whole other day back, and they searched for him another day. Three or four days, they're missing him. They get so distraught, so worried, that they run into the temple probably to pray, and guess who they see setting there? And they run up to him and they smack him and, well, maybe not smack him, probably give him time out is what it is. And um, they get on him and say, what are you doing? Where have you been? And he says to them, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house about my father's business? How do you explain the ministry of Jesus Christ? Tell me something. When I got into college, something dawned on me that 30 years Jesus was alive, He never did one miracle. He never did one. He never walked across water. He never flew around over the oceans. 30 years, and then all of a sudden, three years of ministry, wham, there's buffets everywhere, there's miracles, there's healings. There's all this stuff going on. And 30, how do you explain that? The ministry of Jesus can only be explained by what? How do you explain His death? How do you explain the resurrection from... How do you explain the cross? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and He says, Not my will be done, but... God's will be done. When Jesus was a man, when He was here on earth, He was 100%... But He was God. You see, when they struck Him, He bled, man. When they stabbed Him with the sword, He died. He was just like you. In fact, I could have beat him in basketball. Guarantee it. I would beat most of you in basketball. I was taller than him. If we played inside, I'd probably... Why? 
because he probably had littler muscles than I do. He was a man. He was absolutely man to the point that when they nailed him to the cross, he died. He died. He was born of flesh and blood. He took on this stuff. He came that he might be demonstrated everything in his life. Not He didn't come to demonstrate. He didn't come and have this secret little potion back in his where he could pull out and do some miracles. You know what I also thought was interesting? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter comes out, he whacks off a guy's ear, and Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter and says, If I wanted, he says, and does he say, I could whip out some of my godness and take off everybody. He says, I could call to my Father, and He could send angels. Tell me something. If He's God, why would He resort to angels? If He's God, why would He resort to someone else for protection? Because He was absolutely dependent upon... He never acted out of his own resource. Never, 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 ever, ever, ever. Absolutely 100% man. Flesh and bones. He had every drive that we have. He had every tempt- He was tempted in every way we were tempted. But he never rebelled. He was absolutely, totally, completely surrendered to God. He came that he might be demonstrated. Then John testifies about this. Look in verse 32 of chapter 1. Verse 31 says, uh, the reason I came baptizing was that he might be demonstrated to Israel. Then John gives this testimony. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. It has to do with this picture right here. It has to do with... The Spirit came down from heaven as a dove and remained on him. And uh, he uses this symbolism here. He calls that baptism. That Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there's this uh, play on words here. You see, it's John's uh, picture, John baptized. He says, uh, actually a few verses earlier, uh, in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one whom you do not know, and he's greater than I am. But there's this play on baptism. You see, John baptizes with water. Hear this. This is great news. John baptizes with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so there's this play on this baptism with water and this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you see, Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Went to camp this summer uh, in Iowa. I did the Iowa camp. It's a huge camp. Iowa has one district. Everyone in the whole district sends their kids to me for a week. It was a great time. And uh, middle way through the camp, we've got our motorhome parked out there in the field. And... Uh, we, at junior high camp is, <laughs> no offense, we have any junior hires here? You're contacting junior. No offense, Paul. But uh, junior hires are fun because you can manipulate them and pick on them and beat on them and they don't care. <laughs> you can't do that with senior adults. They hate that. You know, I, I could run up and shove a junior hire down and you know, be mean to him and the next day we'd be best friends again. That changes in high school because they get this attitude, they want to be cool, they've got to be popular. and You can't beat on them anymore. So junior high camps are really fun. But there came a point in the afternoon when I went inside to study and had to take care of a few things and they had this large water fight. And they kept my motor home right there by the edge of the field. And after a while, I began to hear boof, boof, boof on the side of my motor home. And of course, they were missing kids and hitting my motor home with water. And so I just lifted up the, uh, lifted up the curtain, was watching outside, and I saw the funniest sight I ever seen in my entire life. 
You know what the word baptized means? It literally means, translated, immersing, saturated. I mean, it has this picture of grabbing, going completely underwater, absorbed, baptized. That's what that word means. I saw a junior hire. Well, it was so funny. Before the water fight, I've got to include this. Another thing about junior hires. They went out and they said they were going to have this big water fight, so they weren't allowed to bring guns. And they went out and bought all the junior hires squirt guns. But they were the most pathetic squirt guns I've ever seen in my life. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a squirt gun. I don't know what I'd call it. It's about this big. It's about three inches long. And it was, I mean, you would squeeze it and it would go <laughs> literally that long. It squirted, it squirted a little squirt about three to four inches long. That was it. And you would see counselors. Counselors were walking. I don't know if you've seen these. Counselors walking around. I saw one in particular, the one I'm getting ready to talk about. He had this squirt gun that looked like an Uzi. Um, it's one of those that holds like four gallons of water. You know what I'm talking about? That you know, it goes over their back, came down all the way. It was huge, probably like 50 pounds. The guy was staggering. He told me later that in one squirt, it holds one gallon of water. In one squirt. <laughs> and these are like 40 and 50 pound little sixth graders running around with these little pathetic squirt guns going. And I watch, I look out my window and I say, Krinda, look at this. This is great. And this guy, this youth pastor, I'm going to his church sometime, he's got this junior hire laying on his back underneath his foot with his foot on his chest. And this little junior hire is a young kid. He's a great kid. Uh, and he's got this like never say die attitude. And he's laying on his back with his foot on his chest and he's got his water gun pointing in the air. He's going at this youth pastor. I'm not kidding you. This youth pastor is going <laughs> pumping his water gun points his water gun down at the kid and goes, and it was, it, was a, it was a stream about this big around, hitting the kid here, here, splashing everywhere. This kid was baptized. This kid was immersed in water. He could not get any more wet. I'm not kidding you. When these kids came to supper that night, they were wrinkled. They were wrinkled. Their fingers were I would not have known him, verse 33, except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Tell me something. Wouldn't it be, so, wouldn't it be something if you were so filled with the Holy Spirit you were wrinkled? That you were so immersed by His presence that you were saturated to the point that everything that goes on in your life is not you, but it's Him. It's not you doing. It's not you producing. It's Him producing. I struggle with the response to this message because people don't want to die. They like their doing. They like their good works. They like their... This is what He says. That just as Jesus was... We can be. In fact, he tells the disciples, you're going to do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. You're going to be doing the same things that I've been doing. And they're going, really? Yeah. Was he going to teach them some, some little secret? Is he going to give them a little potion they can use from time to time? No. They're going to have the same spirit living in them that he had in him. In fact, the disciples were a bunch of losers 
There's times out their ministry when they try to cast out demons, but they can't. At Pentecost, something happens. Tell me something. What happened? They became saturated. I'm going to talk about this Saturday night, but to the point where Peter walks by in like chapter 5 or 6 of the book of Acts, and his shadow falling on people, they were healed. You see, he was so full of the... You can't pull it off. I wish I could paint it clear. You cannot pull off Christianity. I don't have a chance. See, it's not about my preaching. It has, has little to do with my presentation. has little to do with my style. It has everything to do with this book. Everything to do with this book. It has nothing to do with you. Has, I don't care how long you've went to church. I don't care how long you, you've been in. It has to do with Him. Absolutely. It's not Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not the desire that you lack. It's the... You know what scares me? What the Word says? It says in the last days, there will be many scoffers who have a form of godliness, but denying the power. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. None. None. And what is God calling you tonight to? I quit. I give up. I stop trying. Because every time I, I try, I, I get angry. Every time I try, I fall on my face. Every time I try not to be lustful, it doesn't happen. Every time I try to serve my wife, it doesn't happen. Every time I try to pour my life on the church, I can't do it. Every time I try to, every time I try to discipline myself, it doesn't happen. I'm undisciplined. I cannot discipline. What happens in my life is that as a Christian, He brings me to a point where I stop producing. Stop. Die. He comes down and lives, and He begins to produce through me. And my life is but just a response to what He's doing. Period. Have at me, Jesus. And I get up in the morning, and I go down to my job. I go down to my work, and I'm... And everything that comes in my life, and I respond. I'm absolutely, totally, completely, without reserve, surrendered to Him. And each and everything that comes in my life is His. I respond to what he's doing. Are you sick of living out of self? Are you sick of struggling with the same things over and over and over and over? Are you wondering what your call is? I can tell you. I know everyone's call in this place. I've been given this great gift. I know everyone's call in this place intimately. It's him. Period. My call is not preaching. Preaching is an outlet. My call is to get to know Him. In fact, if I stop preaching, I would never stop. In fact, someday, you know what? My call won't change, but the outlet might. We're going to be a bunch of little cute little kids, brilliant, wonderful, obedient kids, and I'll probably get out and take a pastor somewhere. It won't be a different call. Then I might get a job at Sears and Roebuck. When I'm old, greeting people as they come in, still got one call, different outlet. You can't shut me up about this. You can't never stop. And we hear these ridiculous... People in the world are so foreign, so foreign to them. You can't pray in school. <laughs> How can you stop me? Because the Bible says, I pray without... Well, how, do you, I, how do you pray without... And you hear... Well, how do you do that? <laughs> That's a worldly mindset. You can't do it. Then what do you mean? You die. And you allow Him to do in you what you could never do. 
Where does that begin? Well, dying begins at an altar. And I can't tell you that this is a special altar. It's the altar in your heart. But we as Christians look for physical manifestations of spiritual realities. You want to die tonight? I'm telling you. I mean, really. Not my words. You want to die tonight. You want to stop producing. Jesus was not super duper, super duper human. He was no, way, no different than we are. He came and He smelled just as bad as I do after three or four days after showering. What was the difference between Jesus and me? Jesus never rebelled against God and He had the Holy Spirit living inside of Him. And everything that was going on in the life of Jesus was a product of what God was doing. People would come up to Him and say, Good teacher. And He'd say, Whoa, I'm not good. Why? Because I know I'm just like you. There's only one who's good. He knew what was in man. I love you tonight, Jesus. I love you tonight, Father. Father, the book of Hebrews says that your son was the exact representation of you. Exact. He was no different. I mean, he was so surrendered that everything going on in his life was a product of what you were doing. Jesus, I want to be the exact representation of you in my world. I want to be the exact representation of you to my kids. God, I know that Jesus got mad. I know that He got frustrated. I know that He even made mistakes. But He never sinned. I know that He was a little... uh, He woke up in the morning and maybe misjudged uh, where He was going and got wrong. But Father, He was absolutely, totally... I want to be that way. I've been training all my life, Father, to be all I can be. To do my best to succeed. 